<laughs> okay, uh, Luke chapter eleven, beginning in verse, uh, beginning in verse one. <clears throat> now it came to pass. As he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. <laughs> and do not lead us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from deliver us from the evil. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight? And say to him, Friend? Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Don't trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I, I can't rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as <clears throat> give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask. Or Continue asking, and it will be given to you. Seek, or keep seeking, and you will find. Knock, or keep knocking, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. See, the son, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? As he was, or, and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. The mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against it, a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a man, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who doesn't gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man 
He goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light. As when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him him to dine with him. So he went in and he sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but rather give alms of such things as you have? Then, indeed, all things are clean to you. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. And one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. (laughs) And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers! For you loathe men with burdens hard to bear, and you, you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! 
For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Let's pray, you guys, and then we'll uh, jump back into verse 1 here. We'll start by talking about prayer this morning. Father, it's you that we need. (laughs) As we, again, as we come to the text, it's our desire not simply to be... um, students learning a historical lesson. But more than that, more than that, Lord, we confess that it is you that we need. And it is in your word that we see you with such clarity. There is much to know. There is much to learn of you, of your power, of your divine essence and might from observing the world around us. And we praise you for that. This creation is so vast. And it reminds us of how more you are. But it is through this special revelation. It is through what you have said and how you have revealed yourself to the prophets and apostles that we have a very peculiar way to understand and to know more about who you are. To know your love, your patience, your kindness, your justice. Father, let us see you, I pray. And seeing you, I ask that you would change us so that we would become more like you in in our character. Please, would you do that work in us? Would you keep doing it for the sake of our children and our spouses? For the sake of our city, Lord? For the sake of this world, whatever that might be. Indeed, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth, even as it is in the heavens. Would you do it in Jesus' name, Father? Amen. 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 Pray. <laughs> Pray. Okay, so there's obviously something that stuck out in the, in the life and, and mind of the disciples when it comes to Jesus. And I think that of all the things they asked him, this is one of the things that fascinates me. We see in several places throughout the stories about Jesus how he would withdraw withdraw by himself. He would go somewhere off by himself and he would be in prayer. We, we find uh, other instances of this, like before he chose the 12 to, and called them apostles, he went off to pray in that particular situation that's specifically mentioned. Uh, the night before he was betrayed, even moments before he was betrayed, what was he doing? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, where he was praying, right? Uh, among other times and other situations. When we get to John's Gospel, we're going to hear more of Jesus' prayers. John uh, was one of those guys who was in that inner circle of apostles a little bit uh, with 
Peter and James. Um, and so uh, we're going to hear more of what the content of some of Jesus' prayers are when we get into the Gospel of John. It's one of the things I love is hearing how Jesus prayed. It's interesting to think about this idea of the Godhead, of, of God uh, being one being who exists forever as Father and Son and Spirit, and then, and then having John be able to share with us what the content of the prayer life of Jesus is. Like that is a remarkable concept to me. It's fascinating. But uh, one of the things that obviously struck the disciples was the fact that he prayed, that Jesus prayed to the Father. And um, it seemed to them, uh, at least my understanding is, it seemed to them that this was some sort of key in, in what he was doing. Uh, they, they were able to observe this in his life. And so uh, chapter 11 begins with them asking uh, Jesus to teach them how to pray. So, uh, let's read. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Remember, that's a reference to John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist had disciples. He was baptizing people. Uh, he was teaching them. And then he baptizes Jesus, and then eventually he gets arrested pretty soon after that, and then off with his head, right, a little bit after that. So um, those disciples, many of them begin to follow Jesus, as John identified Jesus to be the Messiah uh, for his disciples. So um, One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say. Now, What's recorded here is obviously incredibly similar to what we find in the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you go back to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, you'll find something very, very similar to this. Uh, it's also, I think, if nothing else, I want to note to you that if you have a translation, some of your, trans some of your translations may uh, be a little bit different than this one that I'm using um, in, in the record here. Uh, some of them are from um, a different set of Greek manuscripts, um, so some of them have a few of the words that are not in here. But, uh, certainly, I think that you'll see that the theme or the thrust of it is the same. So uh, he said, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I heard this prayer a long time growing up. Nobody ever told me what the word hallowed mean, meant, meaned. Nobody told me what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> hallowed, right? Uh, it, it means uh, to be something that is holy, right? Or something that is set apart. Uh, that same idea. Uh, unique, something different. Hallowed be your name. The idea then, therefore, is that God's name is holy or separate. This wouldn't have been a foreign concept to these Jewish hearers, would it? Right? Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So much so did they take that command that the traditions related to it were such that no one was even to ever say the name. In fact, uh, when, they, when they wrote it down, even the letters, uh, the, uh, the stories go that scribes would write one letter and then like take a break and write another letter and then take a break. And, and, and it came to be that even the name, those four letters... Hebrew letters, that even the name of God eventually would become replaced in a lot of writing with the title Lord, so that you could avoid having to worry about saying the name. Right? So um, this would not have been a foreign concept, not, not at all. 
Jesus teaches his disciples here, though, to pray to the Father and to call him Father. There's an incredible intimacy here. What does that look like to to um, somebody who sees God as just some uh, like a, a giant, Im- immense, vast, expansive cosmic power? This transcendent view of God, I think, uh, such a concept is important. But Jesus breathes into this reality of prayer with such an imminence that he teaches his disciples to say, Father, Father. (laughs) Certainly our relationships with our own fathers have been uh, some better than others, some not so great. Um, one of the difficulties that I think I, I at least want to bring up or consider is that uh, for some of us, it may be hard for us to separate our relationship with our own earthly fathers and that reality of that relationship and what that looks like uh, to separate that from our relationship to our father in the heavens. <laughs> um, uh, if uh, maybe you found that your father was difficult to approach. <laughs> or maybe didn't listen or didn't care or maybe harsh or hard or overbearing or other things um, I think it wise and important to remember that uh, the way that we ought to view our Father in the heavens uh, we don't want it to be simply reflective of our own relationship with our own fathers which as good as uh, some of them may have been they're still fallen <laughs> right? so they still made mistakes right? but Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way our Father in the heavens. So when, I teach my, when I've been teaching my kids uh, to pray, I say, you can pray to God and you can call him your father. This is a weird thing to them. It's a strange concept because my kids have said, uh, all of them so far have been like, but you're my dad. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I'm your dad on earth. <laughs> right? And so uh, for me, I've been able to use this particular way of saying it, our father in the heavens, right? Our father in heaven as a distinguishing type of phrase. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The name of God is holy. And in the sense, the idea, at least it ought to be, the idea here is that God is different. He's different than us. But names, names carry weight. And the more you and I study the scripture, the more we find, uh, even in a modern sense, Think about somebody that you don't like. Think about their name. Anytime somebody says that name, frequently you think about the person you don't like. <laughs> like we, we associate sometimes relationships with, with words in various ways, and one of them is people's names. You know? Oh. Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, again, that, that version is very similar to the one in uh, Matthew. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some manuscripts only say your will be done. They don't include the on earth as it is in heaven part or the your will be done. I guess they say your, your kingdom come. That's what they say. Verse 3 says this. Give us day by day our daily bread. 
forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This is a a prayer that if certainly we could just meditate, just dwell on this for weeks, right? You could break each little part of this uh, down. And um, there's much, I think, that could be said about each part. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. What does that look like to pray your kingdom come? In a couple of chapters, we're going to get to a text where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven doesn't come with somebody saying, like, look over here, look over there. But he says the kingdom of heaven is within you. <laughs> your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm like going back own. and forth here. I know. I'm not touching anything. <laughs> oh, oh, is it freaking out then? Of course it is. <laughs> Siri, Siri has a mind of her own. <laughs> get, get this over with, Mister. All right. Think about your marriage and say, "Your kingdom come." Lord. To this marriage, what, what does that look like? Think about your relationship with your children and say, your kingdom come. What, what might that look like? Let's think about our relationship to each other as people follow Jesus together and say, Lord, your kingdom come. Or your, your job, your kingdom come. Our city, What does it look like? Your kingdom come. If nothing else, I think that at the very bottom of this, uh, maybe there ought to be a recognition of us saying, Jesus is teaching us that our goals ought to be his goal. Right? Your kingdom come. We're not saying, Jesus doesn't teach us to pray, Father, let my kingdom come. Right? He doesn't teach us to pray, Lord, Lord, fulfill all my goals and dreams, but instead he puts us in the position of being, uh, of being under or, or of wanting someone else's kingdom to come, right? Now that idea, that concept, I think is something very foreign to many people <laughs> since most of us have been taught uh, to visualize our dreams and to make them happen, <laughs> to make our kingdom come. So then what does it look like in your own heart to bow it down and to say, your kingdom come. Let me stop trying to build the thing that I'm working on. Instead to say, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What then does that look like? Well, uh, Jesus continues as we read and says, give us day by day our daily bread. I've said this a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred times more. I'd much rather pray, Lord, give me today the bread that I need for the next ten years. But if he did that, um, I think the Lord knows me well enough to know that I just wouldn't ask him for anything else. I just wouldn't commune with him because I'd be like, oh, I have the bread I need. He teaches us to pray daily. Give us day by day 
our daily bread. Hmm. What if God really wanted to have an intimate relationship with you? What if he really wanted that? And he wanted you to have that with him. There's a lot of busyness in our lives. I was talking to Kelly about this just the other day. I have this shed in my backyard that is full of boxes of stuff from when we moved here three years ago <laughs> and I said then as I say regularly I'm going to go through all this stuff and just get rid of it and just do that but I never do I've been saying it for like two and a half years now I never do <laughs> but what struck me was that that's the same thing I do with prayer it's the same thing I do with with reading the scriptures, being committed to and spending more time in the Word. I know this is right. I know it's what I want to do. But I don't do that. <laughs> There's just so many other things, you know? Until I, until I purposefully carve out the time. There's never going to be a moment when you sit down, most likely, let me clarify, most likely, there's never going to be stretches of time when you sit down and there's nothing else that you can do so you're just like I might as well read my Bible now it just probably isn't going to happen for most of us so we've got to we've got to then carve out we've got to make the time it has to be a priority to be people who are hearing the scriptures we, we have to, you have to do you have to do it or it probably just isn't going to happen because there's so many other things. These cursed little computers we carry in our pockets <laughs> and in our purses <laughs> that usurp so much of our, our time and energy, right? <laughs> oh, and just the, the everyday busyness. Jesus says, give us day by day our daily bread. What if, what if, what if God wanted you to talk to him every day? What if you wanted to hear what, what was concerning you? I think he does. <laughs> and I found time after time after time that when I am aware of my relationship with the Lord in that peculiar way that we call prayer and reading of the scriptures I find that there are so many of the things that, that that were foggy in my mind that just stop I find that there are so many of the things that were frankly so many of the things I was anxious about that it's like it just melts just melts away I've been listening to a lot of um, oops <laughs> a lot of oops. Yeah, pretty much. I've been listening to a lot of <laughs> Thanks for that. I've been listening to a lot of, uh, of um, 
classes, like lectures, uh, college lectures from professors for a while now uh, as I drive for my job and about all sorts of stuff, philosophy and psychology and chemistry is the one I was going through recently. And um, uh, one, like 48 hours of biology lectures, you know, it's pretty fun stuff. So um, chemistry one's been very interesting. But anyways, uh, so I've been listening to that for a while now in, in different things different areas. And, and then just the other day, I was like, you know, I just, I just need to be, I just want to listen to the scriptures again. So I turned it on, started the book of Acts. And uh, the other day, I was driving to Jacksonville. So I listened to Acts and Romans and then First Corinthians. Um, and it just struck me how different, how different the scriptures are <laughs> than, than all of these things that I have been listening to, philosophy and history of philosophy and of psychology and, 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 and biology and all of this stuff and just how fascinating it is. And I don't mean different in the sense of, um, of everything being in conflict and all of those things are bad and whatever. That's not what I mean. I mean the, the, the sense of, of God's presence and of, of hearing the truth was so, uh, it was palpable, it was real. And yet, you know what one of the hardest things for me to do is? To read my Bible. <laughs> it's just hard. There's just so many other things to do. And I have four kids. <laughs> you know, among, among other things, you know. <laughs> Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. The way this is phrased hurts my feelings. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> right? So, like, Jesus is like, you should pray like this, right? And then he gives us this prayer, and part of the prayer is, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. If you read the one in, uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's similar, but, but uh, equally convincing. It's, it, there's a slight variation in it uh, that I think is... Um, I think it's wonderful uh, where he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive uh, the sins of others. Like, oh, oh, forgive us as we forgive others? Like, are we, are, do we really want to pray that? Do we want to pray like that? Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone, everyone who's indebted to us. Oh, do you want to be a liar to God? Or can you pray that? Forgive us our sins, for we also do this. Right? You're not going to fool him, right? He's going to be like, oh, do you now? Right? But I think maybe that's part of the reason for this. Because if I find myself praying this way, um, even not necessarily using this word, if I say, Lord, forgive me, but if I, if I move from that to saying, Lord, I want to forgive the people that have hurt me or that have sinned against me. If I move to that, then um, I think... Maybe the Lord will be laying his finger on somebody and, and you'll be aware. Hey, there's this person that you're holding this grudge against. And I want you to let go. I want you to forgive. Maybe for some, uh, there's this uh, group of people that you consider outcasts or others. and <coughs> Every time you think of them, you think bad things. I want you to let it go. We also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. 
trouble with that is that sometimes people really are indebted to us and that they have sinned against us and sometimes they're not we're just uh, prejudiced (laughs) and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one Jesus really taught his disciples to pray that they would not be led into temptation Lord, don't lead me into temptation. I think there's a practical side of this too. Because when I pray that, immediately my first thought is, I better not do stupid things that lead me into temptation. If I'm going to pray that God doesn't lead me into temptation, I probably should make sure I'm not leading myself into temptation too, right? Like maybe there are certain places I shouldn't go because I know I'd be tempted to to disobey the Lord in those places. Or maybe uh, certain times I shouldn't use a screen if those are the temptations I'm facing. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Jesus knows what that's like, right? Remember how he was led, he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Do you remember that? That whole deal? Right after he was baptized... He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted by the devil. And so he, I think with a whole a whole lot of empathy, is like, pray like this. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. One thing I hope that you noted is that as Jesus is speaking to all of them, this prayer is, is a group prayer in that the uh, pronouns that are used are plural, right? Our Father, um, give us, forgive us, for we also, and do not lead us into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. This group uh, sort of thing, I think, is uh, interesting, uh, but also a reminder that we're not really in this alone. That reminds me that I have to be caring about other people. <laughs> Jesus teaches his disciples to pray because they asked him. So many things certainly that could be said. May God speak to each of us as we need it. Verse 5 says this, and he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. So Jesus now uses this illustration. He's going to continue to teach them about prayer. That's what this particular illustration is about. It's about being persistent in prayer. But you can imagine the setting. You're in your house. It's midnight. Somebody comes and knocks on the door. It's your friend. He's like, hey, I have some friends that came over. I need some food for them. (laughs) So a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Don't trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I can't rise to give to you. I say to you, although he will not rise and give to him because of his friend, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. This uh, illustration, one thing that struck me is this, wanting to make sure that we're aware of this maybe cultural thing, but I don't know. Uh, he will answer from within, verse 7 says, and he will say, 
do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. It might sound weird to us, <laughs> but it's not weird, right? There are a lot of places where uh, entire families stay in one room buildings, and like everybody just has this one area where they lay down and sleep. So not not uh, strange, not in any sense, but um, a couple of things I want to mention here. One is that if we use something like this, this illustration, this parable, and we try to make every single part mean something, I've told you this about parables before, uh, it can make God sound kind of rude, right? Because this is Jesus teaching us that we have to be persistent in prayer. But the person that's being asked is saying, don't trouble me, the door is now shut. Is that how we're to think of God? Simply, no. <laughs> it's not. Jesus is simply using an illustration that is understandable to the people in order to illustrate what he wants them to do. He wants them to be persistent in prayer, to keep on praying. And that's what the next section continues uh, saying. Uh, because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Verse 9 says, So I say to you, ask. And that uh, uh, word is in the present tense in, that, um, in Greek. And that means the present tense just doesn't, doesn't simply mean something happening right in this moment. Um, it specifically means something that is a repeated action that continues. So I say to you, ask, or keep asking, and it will be given to you. Seek, or keep seeking, and you will find. Knock, or keep knocking, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now Jesus wants us to get a view of the one we're asking. I think <laughs> sometimes, Lord, how little, how little I pray. teaching the disciples to persist in prayer. Now he teaches them about the one to whom they are praying. At least something about it. If a son asks for bread, from any father, verse 11 says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Can you imagine? I mean, some of us are smart-alecky enough that like, if our children ask us for a piece of bread for something, we'd be like, here, chew on this rock, kid. Right? That's just because we're smart Alex. Like, we wouldn't actually give them a rock and really expect them to chew on it. We're just kind of jerks sometimes. Uh, so, um, if the son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Like, Dad, I want a fish. Here, here's a snake instead. <laughs> oh, cool. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Dad, can I have some scrambled eggs? No, no, no. Here's a scorpion on a stick. <laughs> if you ask for an egg, we offer the scorpion. If you then, here's the pertinent point. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, Hmm. 
I hear the things that are being said here? It seems that the direction that Jesus wants to push us toward is one where we are confident and trusting in our prayers. That we get to approach God as Father and know Him as the good Father that He is. And sometimes I still don't pray. And I try and wrestle through things and try and figure it out all on my own. Sometimes out of arrogance and pride. Sometimes maybe because I just forget. That God is a good Father. He's a good Father. He wants you to pray. So I ask you, in what ways might you be able, might you and I be able to purposely cultivate, to set aside time, to to make it happen? How can I do that? Can I do that uh, at, you know, one o'clock in the morning when I finally turn the television off and try to roll into bed? (laughs) I usually just fall asleep. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you can. There's no bad time. Right? There's no bad time to pray. (laughs) There's no inappropriate time. Pray always. Pray without ceasing. That's the instruction to us uh, from the Apostle, from Paul, right? Pray without ceasing. Pray always, in everything, give thanks. Because this is God's will for you. People are like, what is God's will for me? What is God's will for me? Does he want me to buy this car or that car? And God's like, I want you to pray all the time. (laughs) I want you to give thanks all the time. That's my will for you, right? (laughs) But which car does he want me to buy? I don't know, just buy one and pray. (laughs) Because that's his will for you. (laughs) You know? What might it look like if I take seriously Jesus' instruction to keep on praying? Would it look different than um, what my prayer life looks like now? So I suppose what I want to share, what I want to say to you guys is the very minimum thing that I want us to get is um, are there opportunities that you and I could be using differently? Are there other ways, are there um, times where we could change some of our habits Um, and cultivate and and make more time for prayer and make more time for the reading of the scriptures? Are there ways that we can do that together? Can Can we do that as families? Whenever we get together as families, just even to hang out, are there ways that we can use some of that time to say, hey, 
we're just hanging out. Let's grab a Bible and let's just read some and pray together. <clears throat> are there ways? Certainly there are ways. <laughs> Is that something that uh, we might be able to do? Okay, obviously it depends on what we choose to do, what I choose to do. I think we have opportunity. He was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. This is one of those uh, miracles that, uh, at least according to um, um, one particular um, Jewish scholar that I know um, of, uh, he says that this is one of the miracles that was expected of the Messiah to perform because the traditional form of exorcism was such that you would ask a demon its name, and the demon would tell you its name, and then you could command it out by the power of God. There were already Jewish exorcists. Uh, this was not, the casting out of demons was not something only Jesus did. Uh, but the belief among the Jews, uh, it is suggested, was that only the Messiah would be able to cast out a mute spirit. Because if you ask a mute spirit its name, he don't talk, right? Mute means unable to speak, Right? And so you wouldn't be able to cast that kind of demon out of someone because you wouldn't be able to call it by its name to cast it out. So the um, uh, suggestion then is that only the Messiah would be able to do this. This is something, of course, Jesus did. There were two other of those types of miracles. This is one, the casting out of a mute spirit, a mute demon. Um, When the demon had gone out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes then marveled. Of course, because... Apparently nobody nobody did that. <laughs> and if it was expected that the Messiah would do it, then this means something pretty drastic here, <laughs> something pretty significant uh, by Jesus doing it. Some of them therefore said, verse 15, continuing along that line, some of them therefore said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now they have to come up with a reason why Jesus is able to cast out demons, which, by the way, I think lends itself to this idea uh, that this was an, an uncommon miracle. If the casting out of demons was something that was already done regularly, even by Jews and Jewish exorcists, um, it wouldn't have necessarily been that big a deal. But the fact that he casts out a mute spirit, now they have to come up with a reason why he's able to cast out a mute spirit. right? And so here's their reason. The reason why he's able to cast out a mute spirit is because of the Lord of the Flies, (laughs) Beelzebub. right? Um, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Some translations say Beelzebub. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. So there's this, it's almost like there's a confrontation now. Because he cast out a mute spirit, one group of people is saying, no, no, the only reason why he could do that was because of uh, his power coming from the ruler of the demons, from Beelzebul or Beelzebub. And then others are like, no, 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 if he's really the Messiah, let him show us a sign from heaven, right? Let him change the sky or do something, right? Like like Joshua, like make the sun stand still, you know, like show us some sign, right? In the heavens. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. He's going to respond to this idea of him doing this by the power of the ruler of the demons. And a household divided against itself, against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Like, why would Satan go around casting out other demons? He's the ruler of the demons. Why would he throw demons out of somebody to help them? 
If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges, right? Because there were already Jewish exorcists. So, like, if Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the Lord of the Flies, by Beelzebub, then how are they casting them out? Therefore, they will be judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, <clears throat> if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. What do we think about the coming of Jesus? What do we think that he came to do? What is he doing now? What is this thing called the kingdom of God? Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes him, takes from him all his armor in which he trusted, and divides his spoils. He who is in with me is against me. He who doesn't gather with me scatters. This is him talking now about this authority that he has over the demonic realm. Doesn't matter how strong they are. But here's something that they can understand. Like if somebody's guarding their house and he's really strong, then he can protect his own stuff. But if somebody stronger than him comes and overtakes him, then then he can't. And that's what Jesus is now describing, his authority over the demonic world. He's greater than they are. And he who isn't with me is against me. He who doesn't gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. This doesn't seem real exciting. (laughs) I think that um, certainly, if we look at Jesus' illustration above, about the strong man, fully armed, guarding his palace, and we couple that idea of Jesus being able to uh, of give us of his Holy Spirit, this promise of the Father that was to us and to our children and um, to as many as the Lord our God will call. then maybe what Jesus is talking about here, I'm just trying to suggest something to you. Maybe what he's talking about here is what happens with some of the Jewish exorcists. Maybe they do cast out demons. But then those demons go and they find some buds and they're like, hey, dudes, come on, let's go back over to this place I was, uh, I was hanging out in. And they find it nice and swept and put in order. This person's reformed themselves in some particular way. But then the last state of that man is worse than the first. Rather than being better. Jesus has promised us, among other things, something better than that. that An inheritance that involves God giving us of himself. 
the promise of the Holy Spirit was such an integral, in, integral, central part of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Such that Paul said, if someone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. What happened, verse 27. As he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. This is her compliment to Jesus because of his teaching. Right? Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. I'm such a 14-year-old that I wanted to title this sermon, Blessed Womb, Blessed Breasts, but Kelly told me I couldn't do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to mention it because I'm 14, as I told you. <laughs> this is a compliment uh, to Mary, right? Like, your, your mother is blessed, right? Because of what Jesus is doing, because of his ministry, they're saying your, your mother is a very blessed woman, right? But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, right? Those who hear God's word and hold it and do it, keep it. Let me caution you with that as well. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It isn't enough for me to just hear the scriptures. I need to believe them. I need to keep the word of God, to hold it, to obey. There there are many people who hear the scriptures or who hear part of them and who don't believe And it doesn't benefit them because it's not mixed with faith. It's not mixed with trust. Even as uh, Israel heard the word of God, they heard God's promises, they heard his commands. But the word that they heard that Moses gave to them didn't benefit them because it wasn't mingled with faith. Many of them didn't believe it. So it didn't help, it didn't matter. while the crowds were thickly gathered together. Verse 29, he began to say, this is an evil generation. Stop right there. <laughs> Sometimes people now are like, the time we're living in now is so evil, it's like the worst it's ever been. Listen, it's always an evil generation. It's like, it doesn't matter when it is. Like, I think Jesus could have said this at any point, any time in history. Like, it's always an evil generation. Okay? It's just, things are a mess around the world because of rebellion to God. And it's always everywhere, okay? Including in me, right? Including in you, right? We've been redeemed from, we've been, we've been purchased back, we've been, we've been bought with the blood of Jesus, right? But he says, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet, something that's mentioned uh, in uh, several places in the, um, the gospel writings, the sign of Jonah uh, being in the belly of the great fish, right? And then being spit up, right? being vomited out. So it was a sign of death, burial, and resurrection. This is the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah for Jesus? Death, burial, and resurrection. He's going to be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. This is the sign. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin. It is the, it is the thing that, our, that our, our, our faith rests on. That Jesus has been raised from the dead changes everything. And Paul reaffirms that for us in his letter to the Corinthians. 
um, even for him, for the early believers. This was what this is what the whole thing really, really settled in on. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, this generation seeks a sign. <laughs> Not just that generation, right? This generation too. If God is real, then he'll show me a sign. What does that even mean? Like, what does that look like for people? What sign? Sometimes I've asked people this before. What, what would it take for you to believe? What sign would, would make you believe something? There are, frankly, so many miraculous things that happen around us all the time that we just ignore. And we just call them normal. Because <laughs> they happen so frequently. <laughs> Our brains are very interesting in the way that we focus on particular things, frankly, because we want to focus on certain things over other things. <coughs> and there are many reasons why we do that. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. This is part of, um, this section is kind of a hard one for me, this section of scripture. It's a hard one for me because I want to make sure we're getting uh, our, our minds wrapped around what's happening in Jesus' ministry here. This is the, the situation where Jesus begins to say to, uh, to the religious leaders, and to others, and we have this recorded for us in the other gospel writings as well, that um, all blasphemy would be forgiven all men. All manner of sin would be forgiven all men, but blasphemy against the Spirit of God would not be forgiven. And Jesus is going to pronounce judgment on his hearers, on that generation. And that judgment would fall literally 40 years after Jesus came in a very direct, when I say judgment, in that sense, I'm talking about very physical direct judgment on the nation itself. When the nation gets essentially destroyed and then scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Okay? So, much of what we're reading here deals directly with that reality. Because they had rejected Jesus' ministry and attributed it not to the Spirit of God, but rather to, the, to a demonic spirit. He casts out demons by whom? By the spirit of Beelzebub, by the, by the, the ruler of the demons. And so now he begins to speak to them about judgment, saying the queen of the south will rise up. She came from far away to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but now someone greater than Solomon is here. She will rise up against them in the judgment. And, and um, uh, Nineveh itself will also, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. By the way, Jesus is going to be put up on a lampstand. You and I call it a cross. It was put up on display. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your your, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Can you imagine if you are a religious leader in Israel and you think you're walking in the light in all the traditions of the elders and now this one comes along and he says, the light in you may be darkness. The thing that you think is, is giving light to everything around you is actually darkness. Whew. (laughs) 
this idea, the lamp of the body is the eye. Ooh. <laughs> you ever considered how you see things, how you look at them? Perspective affects a lot in our lives. How we, we see things. The lamp of the body is the eye. When your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. When your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. These are sad statements of judgment against a nation that is rejecting their Messiah. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light. As when the bright line the bright lining, the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. There is an opportunity for redemption, but they must be born from above. And Jesus certainly explained that to them and to us as well. We must be born again or born from above. As he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with them. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. There was a traditional type of hand washing that they were to participate in uh, before they ate. But apparently, Jesus didn't do that at this particular time. Uh, He marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make make he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. <laughs> That's fascinating that he couples this idea of um, inner righteousness with the idea of giving to the poor. <laughs> give alms of such things as you have, he said. The Pharisees typically were some of the wealthier people in Israel at the time. And Jesus is going to address, as, as he begins to, he's going to continue to address um, one of the primary issues he had with them was that they made things look right on the outside, but inside they were just full of death. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. This is still something that characterizes much spiritual life. We do things that that look right on the outside because other people can see them. We say the right words. We paint the right picture on the outside of our lives, but inside there's no life there. Inside we lack justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. 
<laughs> there is in these statements this idea that they love prominence and prestige. You love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Don't you love when people know who you are? <laughs> is that what you're after? Fame? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now he uses that word. When I was trying to describe hypocrites to my kids, I said, hey, the word hypocrite is the Greek word for an actor. So, like, these were actors. And, and, then, and then they're like, so, like, and Jesus said hypocr- hypocrites are bad, right? So then they're like, so, like, all the people that are actors are, like, disobeying Jesus? And I'm like, okay, no, no, no. let me help you understand this a different way. <laughs> like, uh, they are pretenders, right? That's the word that I said a lot. And they understood that much better. They're people pretending to be something they're not, right? They're pretenders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites or pretenders, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Now, that might not sound really bad to you, but that's horrible for a Jewish person, because if you were to walk over the grave, you'd become unclean, (laughs) right? In fact, it's one of the reasons why uh, many, many, many years ago, when Israel was conquered by some Islamic forces, they buried a bunch of people on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. It's a big graveyard now. Because the prophecies said that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem through the east gate. And so they buried, they made a graveyard there in order to try to prevent the Jewish Messiah from coming <laughs> in that sense. So it's a very fascinating part of history. Um, uh, and you can, so if you see pictures, you can see the, um, the wall there on the eastern side, and you can see all the graves right underneath it, heading down to the, the Kidron Valley, in the, the, where the Brook Kidron used to go. You can see all the grave sites and headstones and stuff there, in uh, many pictures of it. So, um, anyways, you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. They weren't helpful to the people, they were hurt, hurtful. You can see that. They were hurtful. Their religion was about external um, appearances more than it was about justice and about God's love, more than about it was about internal righteousness. It was about doing the right things on the outside, even while inside they were full of dead men's bones, to borrow another one of Jesus' phrases from another place. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you you reproach us also. And he's like, yep. <laughs> That's his response to them. So real quickly, we'll finish up here. Um, the, not only did he reproach the Pharisees because of their false religion, but the lawyers, these wouldn't, again, don't think of uh, like a secular lawyer working in a secular court system. Uh, instead, uh, understand that much of, much of um, not only um, political uh, life, but religious life was tied into the same thing in Israel as it was in many other cultures as well. So these lawyers were experts in the law. They were experts in the law of Moses, right? And certainly, therefore, in the traditions of the elders of Israel as well. So that's the concept of the idea here of these lawyers. Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyers. He's like, you're right, I do. (laughs) Woe to you, lawyers. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And it's not just the religious leaders in Israel that have done this. It still happens today. In churches all across our country and all across the world, there are burdens laid on people that God never set. Restrictions put. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. 
which all concern things which perish with the using. But Paul said that those things don't matter. They're of no benefit to the real indulgence of the flesh. Because we say, you know, don't, don't drink that alcohol while giving ourselves to greed and to lust and to prejudice in our hearts. We pass by justice and the love of God because we focus on external standards and we make up traditions that pass from generation to generation to generation about what it looks like to do right. But they're only on the outside because it's only God who can change the inside. You load men with burdens hard to bear and you, you yourselves don't touch the burdens of one of your fingers. Not only do you come up with all these rules that people have to obey, but you don't even try and help. <laughs> you just say, do better. <laughs> Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. It's a, this fascinating thing. The fathers of Israel rejected the prophets that God sent to them. They killed the prophets. But the children were like, let's build these monuments to the prophets. Wait a minute. Your fathers killed the prophets. What are you talking about? For they indeed, indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. This is... I don't know how you want to explain this. This is a really heavy idea of them bearing the guilt, not only like, like of, of all of this, culminating in them. And I suggest to you the reason why is because the greatest of all the prophets, Jesus, is right in front of them. And it's him that they're rejecting. The blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. You may not... The, Zechariah was killed at the end of Second Chronicles if you want the reference for that. So from the beginning to the end of this prophetic period. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. That is a heavy weight. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. As he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Now his ministry to the nation of Israel shifts. Overall, the leaders of Israel have now rejected Jesus and his ministry. And much of what we see is Jesus pouring into his disciples, recognizing that judgment is coming upon the nation because they have rejected the Messiah. So then, among other things, um, what does it mean for me 
What does it mean for me to, well, first of all, that issue of prayer. What does that mean for me about how I pray? And when I pray? And also this issue of trying to live a religious life just in externals while ignoring the deep inward work that God must do in our hearts. Is that the way that we are presenting ourselves, both individually or as, as a church body, as a group of believers? As if there are all of these sort of traditional rules that we need to try to keep, and then um, that's it, right? Without recognizing this deep inward work that has to happen in our hearts. And we're pursuing God to continue working in us. I've been thinking about this idea, too, of Jesus saying um, that uh, the blood of all the prophets, which was said from the foundation of the world, will be required of that generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. And I think, Lord, are there things that have happened in the history of my people that I can grieve over? And I can say, Lord, how can I be a person who, who therefore pursues justice and pursues your love? What does that look like in loving my neighbor today? It would be 40 years after this that Israel as a nation would be decimated by Roman armies the temple will be destroyed. Judgment really came. <laughs> well, Jason, what are you trying to say? <laughs> I'm not trying to say anything <laughs> other, than, other than, than what I see here. Are you saying judgment's going to fall on America? I can't say that. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But I can, <laughs> right? <laughs> but not just on us. Not like we're we are uh, the worst of all peoples, right? Jesus came to give us life, and the good news is not that He comes and gives us a bunch of rules to try and follow, but that He rescues us from our sin. He gives us of His Spirit. He accepts us into His family, and He says, "You can now talk to God as." Do it. Pray to your Father. Let's be careful about making up religious schemes that make us look good on the outside, but neglect to deal with our true sin, which is usually things like pride anger, unforgiveness, and bitterness. The things inside that um, destroy us and they, they destroy our relationships so often. <laughs> Covetousness, my goodness. <laughs> 
covetousness, which Paul says is idolatry. <laughs> it's easier for me to tell you that all you have to do is come to church on Sunday, give 10% of your income to the church, and don't sleep around, and um, don't drink alcohol. It's easier for me to tell you that than it is for me to tell you, deal with the pride in your heart. <laughs> Those other things are a lot easier to deal with <laughs> than the unforgiveness. That, that person that sinned against you that you're still angry about, that you won't deal with because they've hurt you really badly. And I, and I don't downplay that. Some of us have been hurt tremendously. But there's still a place of forgiveness. We love so many other things. We can be wrapped up in covetousness, right? If me walking with Jesus is just about playing some external game, then I don't want it. I'm not interested in playing that game. But because he loves me, I am convinced he's committed to working out of me and putting into me the things more and more of himself and working out of me the things of my flesh. But sometimes this isn't nice work. <laughs> sometimes it's very hard. <laughs> and sometimes God uses difficult things to produce this kind of everlasting fruit in me, that fruit of the Spirit that is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Sometimes he uses things that hurt. <laughs> God, teach us to be patient. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. You have been so patient with us, and I pray that you would teach us to depend on you. <laughs> if nothing else, I really I want to hear this warning to that generation about the, the falsehood of their religious practice. At the end, it wouldn't save them. because they have despised you, Jesus. They have blasphemed your spirit and would continue to. Some believed as you promised to always have a remnant to those who do. Lord, we pray that you make us to be um, not just uh, religious looking on the outside, but that you would indeed change our hearts. That we would do justly and love mercy. <laughs> that we walk humbly with you, Lord. Esteeming others as better than ourselves. Teach us what that looks like in our marriages with our kids at work, in, in our fellowship as believers, in our relationship as one church with another church, 
in our relationship as a church with our community, Lord, as individuals with our community, as, as employees and as employers. Teach us what it means to esteem others as better than ourselves and to serve and to trust that, that, that being last is being first in your kingdom. <laughs> Lord, help us to heed the warning. <laughs> I pray. I pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You guys, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. And the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. If there's some particular thing that you want uh, prayer about or for, then uh, grab somebody and say, hey, would you pray for me about this thing? The Lord bless you guys as you continue to walk with Jesus and serve each other.